Welcome to the NM Talks Healthcare Podcast. On this podcast, you'll find thought-provoking insight into critical topics surrounding the healthcare industry. Each episode features Nelson Mullins healthcare attorneys and special guests who offer a variety of experience in healthcare. Hello and welcome to the Nelson Mullins podcast series. Today we are going to be speaking about emerging trends in Medicare Advantage and risk adjustment. And my name is Christine Worthen and I'm a partner at Nelson Mullins. My practice areas are healthcare regulatory and ERISA. For purposes of today's podcast, um, my experience on the healthcare side focuses on legal and strategic advice regarding regulatory issues and reimbursement, including fee-for-service and traditional managed care, as well as the introduction and integration of value-based reimbursement, as well as pay for quality to shared savings to partial and full risk. I work with traditional Medicare programs, uh, as well as the CMMI uh, value-based programs. I've worked on Pioneer, NextGen, MSSP, Primary Care First, and the ACO REACH program. I also do a lot on the managed Medicaid space across the country, and I've worked with the commercial payers on their various value-based programs and helping providers navigate those. The traditional healthcare systems I've as usually uh, where I've started, I've also I also represent primary care practices, specialty care practices, behavioral health practices, as well as home health and hospice. The also the considerations regarding risk um, bearing organizations and planning and guidance regarding same, and the fraud and abuse, of course, and HIPAA privacy considerations, and the emerging trends with venture capital and private private equity-backed startups. Today, I'm joined by Mandy Oscarson, who works with BRG's health analytics practice and provides consulting services to healthcare clients and their counsel related to damages calculations, government investigations, and internal audits and investigations. She works with publicly available Medicare data and private internal or electronic medical records data to benchmark clients against peers. Mandy's work often involves managing the analysis of large sets of data to identify trends for clients or create damages models. Much of her work has focused on short-term acute care hospitals, inpatient psychiatric facilities, and post-acute care hospital systems, including skilled nursing facilities, inpatient rehab facilities, long-term acute care home health agencies, and hospice. She's also worked with physician groups, contract therapists, and specialty facilities. She has experience working with payers, particularly Medicare Advantage plans, which she assists in investigations related to risk adjustment and submission of diagnosis codes to CMS. She uses complex data analyses in the investigation and litigation space with outputs such as damages calculations and analyses for expert reports. In the advisory space, she uses these analytics to present trends and identify potential issues or red flags. So welcome, Mandy, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much, Christine, for having me today. I'm excited to be here. Why don't you provide us an overview 
of our topics and maybe level set by introducing Medicare Advantage to those who might need an introduction. That sounds great, thanks. Uh, so today, Christine and I plan to talk about a few different topic areas and as they relate to the Medicare Advantage program. First, we're going to talk briefly about the Medicare Advantage final rule. Um, we'll talk through some areas of investigation and litigation that are currently going on in the Medicare Advantage space. And then we'll also talk a little bit about the audit landscape and some of the emerging trends in audits as they relate to Medicare Advantage plans. As just a level set, uh, this year is actually a big year for the Medicare Advantage world. The reason for that is that we have reached the point uh, where 50% of the Medicare population is enrolled in a Medicare Advantage plan. What that means is that 50% of our Medicare eligible beneficiaries are choosing to enroll with a private health insurance plan to cover their Medicare benefits rather than enrolling in a traditional Medicare plan. The reason that we'll talk about Medicare Advantage today and risk adjustment relates very much to what Medicare Advantage plans do and how they're paid. So Medicare Advantage plans, like I said, are private insurance companies that are covering Medicare benefits for Medicare beneficiaries. These plans are paid by the federal government um, and they're paid a risk adjusted payment. What that means is that each Medicare Advantage plan is paid a set dollar amount for each member for each month that they're enrolled in the plan. That dollar amount is then adjusted by the quote risk of each of those members. Each member's risk is assessed based on the conditions that that member has. So for example, you may a Medicare Advantage plan may be paid $1,000 for each member for each month, but if they have a Medicare beneficiary with diabetes, that dollar amount might increase because of the risk that that patient bears having diabetes. And so today we'll talk a lot about diagnosis codes, the submission of diagnosis codes from the Medicare Advantage plans to the federal government, and generally the risk that the federal government and the Medicare Advantage plans are taking on. And the key concept to think about here is what uh, is the, the way that the Medicare Advantage plans are paid. And that's why when we talk through diagnosis codes and the submission of codes to the um, federal government, that's going to be an important key concept. Of course, there are other key concepts that Christine and I will talk through as well, but we just wanted to make sure before we, we dive into some of the details that we level set about why risk or what risk adjustment is and why diagnosis codes matter in the Medicare Advantage world. Christine, I'll turn it back over to you to talk a little bit about the final rule. Great. Thanks, Mandy. So in terms of uh, getting started on the Medicare Advantage final rule, I'll just go through a brief summary of the history, the changes, and the impact of those changes. So as Mandy was mentioning, the Medicare Advantage risk adjustment process has garnered a lot of attention and is very important to the Medicare Advantage program. The risk adjusted payments are based on medical diagnoses that are submitted by the plans that in terms of the uh, long-standing regulations pertaining to the Medicare Advantage program must be supported by the Medicare Advantage enrollees' medical records, and that is to ensure uh, accurate payment. And as Mandy was noting, the insurers, the insurance companies, the Medicare Advantage organizations receive higher payments for enrollees with greater health care needs, which is a risk score, 
And of course, that's because their care is expected to, to cost more. The goal of the policy there is to ensure that the plans have sufficient resources to serve individuals with greater health needs, and then to discourage the Medicare Advantage organizations from disproportionately enrolling only healthy enrollees. And it also has created an incentive to increase risk scores um, by thoroughly identifying and submitting data for more health conditions, which can increase the payments to the Medicare Advantage plans. So what is risk adjustment drilling down a bit? Uh, it's a risk mitigation tool, and its purpose is to offset high risk, i.e. high cost enrollees, and to guard against selecting healthy enrollees by adjusting for health status. And it's used in the Medicare Advantage market. It's also used in the Medicaid managed care market. Each state has its own risk adjustment program, which must be actuarially sound. And it's also used in the commercial market. So the risk adjustment process is not just a Medicare Advantage uh, uh, piece. How does it work in the commercial market? So this would this is um, this overview is just so you can understand and compare and contrast the differences between risk adjustment in the commercial market and Medicare Advantage. In the commercial market, the Affordable Care Act created a risk adjustment program for individual and small group markets. And they also created a temporary transitional reinsurance program and a temporary risk corridors program. The age, sex, and diagnoses of the enrollees are used to produce a risk score, and the risk scores are concurrent. And by concurrent, that means that they're based on enrollee data for the applicable benefit year. And states can set up their own risk adjustment programs if they operate their own exchange, or they can or they may permit. HHS to develop and manage the program in the state. At present, HHS operates all 50 states. The risk adjustment methodology that's been developed by HHS is based on the premise that premiums should reflect differences in plan benefits, quality, and efficiency rather than the health status of the enrolled population. And so the HHS operated risk adjustment methodology determines plans of risk adjustment transfer amounts under a state payment transfer formula based on the actuarial risk of enrollees, the value of coverage utilization, and the costs of doing business in the local rating areas, and the effect of different cost sharing levels on utilization. What does all that mean? That means plans that have healthier people with lower risk scores pay into a pool in each state and plans with sicker members get to take money, which gives the program a zero-sum outcome, and that's important. Contrast that with the Medicare Advantage program. Um, unlike the commercial market, which is concurrent, the Medicare Advantage risk adjustment program is prospective, and that means that plans use prior year data to predict the future risk of the enrollees. So the plans evaluate the health of their own members and build risk scores based on medical coding. And unlike the Affordable Care Act approach, which is a zero-sum game, the Medicare Trust Fund covers the cost, i.e. if it costs more, they will pay more. Thus, of course, there's been concerns with upcoding, improper diagnoses, and risk scores to obtain greater payment. And as Mandy had mentioned, CMS makes capitation payments to the Medicare Advantage organizations with whom it contracts. The Medicare Advantage organizations then enter into participation agreements with their network providers to deliver services to the members. CMS sets the payment rate based on the local area benchmarks that represent the higher 
the maximum amount that CMS will pay for health benefits for beneficiaries in that locale. There are higher payments made in rural areas and lower payments in urban areas. The benchmarks for each area are based on a statutory formula using average traditional Medicare spending for per beneficiary. And as you will see come out each year, the CMS annual advance notice and rate announcement are used to update the factors that impact the benchmark. And the factors include the growth rate in traditional fee-for-service Medicare, the Medicare Advantage growth rate, and the changes to the star rating systems. The health plan payments is, are also modified by the risk scores of the enrollees and quality performance payments to reflect the health status and demographics of the members. The health conditions and diseases, so each individual, um, on, are assigned diagnosis codes, and these are the ICD-10 codes. CMS then takes those codes and groups the individual codes into broader diagnosis groups, which are then filtered into HCCs. The HCCs help to predict the cost of care and are considered as part of the adjustment process, meaning the risk adjustment. So the risk-adjusted payments are based on medical diagnoses submitted by the Medicare Advantage plans, and those diagnoses need to be supported in the patient's medical records to make sure that the payment is accurate. The risk adjustment factor, or the RAF score, measures the patient complexity. Each HCC is assigned a RAF. The RADV final rule, which was issued in January 2023, was in, is intended to address instances where Medicare Advantage organizations received more than they otherwise should have received because the diagnoses submitted were not supported in the enrollee's medical record. So it codifies the principle that as part of the audit methodology for RADV, CMS is going to extrapolate RADV audit findings beginning with payment year 2018. It also confirmed that CMS is not going to apply a fee-for-service adjuster in the audits to account for any effect of erroneous diagnosis codes in the data from Medicare Parts A and B that are used to calibrate the risk adjustment model. The fee-for-service adjustment, just FYI, was previously utilized to calculate a permissible level of payment error and thus limit RADV audit recovery to payment errors above a level. The Medicare Advantage 2024 rate announcement had a, a few key components, which is that it's going to phase in the finalized risk adjustment program over three years. It removed over 2,000 codes from its HCC model, including those that um, you may see more frequently, such as major depressive disorder, diabetes with chronic conditions, rheumatoid arthritis. And it's important that if you, uh, it's important for you to keep in mind that the um, MA plans will need to continue submitting the V24 applicable codes to CMS through 2025, CMS is phasing in the version 2028 over a few years. So in 2026, there will be 100% on version 28. There was also the 21st Century's Cures Act, which as part of the goal to phase out using the risk adjustment processing system, i.e. the RAPS, the Cures Act paved the way for CMS to begin using encounter data, encounter data systems or EDS. So what that meant is in 2021, 75% of the diagnosis data for risk score calculation came from EDS, while 25% came from RAPS. In 22 and beyond, EDS will be used entirely as the source of MA plan diagnoses. 
the biggest difference between these two systems is the data source. So for RAPS, Medicare Advantage plans would submit data in the in the reporting system in in fields, and they could also uh, abstract data from claims submitted by providers as well as diagnoses captured during internal or vendor contracted audits of medical records. So the chart reviews. So the as part of RAPS, the plans can submit diagnoses data to CMS. EDS is different. EDS is based on the claims, so the claims that are sent from the provider to the Medicare Advantage plan, and then the Medicare Advantage organization forwards the claim to CMS. So that's important to remember is that the chart reviews and those uh, components are shifted now to claim submission on the front end. So then what does all that mean and what is the risk? The risk is that lies in providers and Medicare Advantage organizations uh, attesting to and submitting complete and accurate claims. Providers network agreements always have language in there attesting to the fact that the claims they're submitting meet the standard. Um, as we know that if you submit a claim for purposes of the 837 file, it may not complete, it may not contain all of the ICD-10 codes needed. So then of course the question becomes what's complete and accurate because now we know that un under EDS, the codes uh, that are relevant for payment, there may not be all of the codes that might be um, relevant for the patient's condition. And so there are uh, additional things to consider, which we'll talk about a bit later about reviewing the contract templates, et cetera. But for now, I'll turn it back to you, Mandy, now that we've got that overview. Great, thanks, Christine. Um, that overview is very helpful. So the first thing that I thought I would talk through, which is very related, is what I have seen in the audit process um, through my experience with Medicare Advantage plans and just generally through information that's been published on CMS's website, the OIG website. Um, so the two types of audits that I really wanted to talk through and discuss today um, are two ways that the OIG and CMS use the tools that they have available to review and audit Medicare Advantage plans. The first of those two audit types are those that are related to high risk conditions or high risk diagnosis codes. So I know we've talked a lot about why diagnosis codes are important in the Medicare Advantage space, um, but there are certain conditions that have been identified by um, the OIG that, and CMS that relate to um, very specific codes that could potentially be an issue. So some examples of those high-risk diagnosis codes include acute stroke, heart attack, um, a pulmonary embolism, vascular claudication, general vascular disease, um, and major depressive disorder. Now we've seen some trends that these, these high-risk conditions have changed over time, but those are the general conditions that we're seeing that are being targeted in some of these audits. So in thinking through what Medicare Advantage plans can do when they are going through their audit, there are a few ways that they can use the information that they have available and their data to respond to these audits. So a few things that are important to note is first, 
as Christine was talking about earlier regarding um, extrapolation starting in project or in payment year 2018, the universe for which these audits are being reviewed is going to be really important because that's ultimately the universe that will be extrapolated to um, starting in payment year 2018. So when thinking through the response to the audit, it's very important to say, did we correctly identify the appropriate universe for acute stroke? Did we appropriately identify the correct universe for major depressive disorder, et cetera, for all of those different conditions? So evaluating the universe is going to be important to make sure that when extrapolation does become an issue, you've identified the proper universe. The same is true when thinking about the sample. So as the sample has been pulled, it's very important to, to question the sample and make sure that you have a good understanding of, is the sample representative of the universe from which it's being pulled? And is the extrapolation methodology for each of these different subcategories or strata, such as each of the different high-risk conditions, are those samples appropriate? Ultimately, of course, it's important to test and understand the results of the audit. So reviewing each record in its entirety to understand, do we agree with these findings? Are there ways that we want to respond to these findings before these findings are ultimately used to extrapolate to a universe? So that's one category of audit that we've seen a lot of action in in the past. Um, the other audits are much more broad. Um, we've seen audits where instead of looking at specific high-risk conditions, um, the CMS or OIG has a much broader approach where they are reviewing all conditions, all risk-adjusting conditions typically, um, and identifying a subset of members and a subset of records to review within that uh, universe. The same principles ap apply. It's really important to get a good understanding as to how was the universe identified and is the universe appropriate? Uh, and then two, of course, to understand how was the sample identified? Is the sample representative of the universe in its entirety? And then what are the results of the review of the sample? Um, using information that you have available to answer those key questions is going to be very important and helpful when going through the audit process. So now, Christine and I were thinking that it would be helpful to talk through two examples of recent settlements that we have seen in the Medicare Advantage space. I'll start first with a settlement that has been talked about extensively in uh, the media, in conferences that we've attended, and just generally in the Medicare Advantage world, um, which is the most recent Cigna settlement, which happened in September of 2023, so this year. The settlement um, when it when it was published on the website in 2023 is noted to be a settlement for $172 million. Um, and that settlement really addresses three key issues, all related to diagnosis codes that were submitted by the plan to the federal government for reimbursement um, for the Medicare Advantage plan. The first category of this $172 million relates to chart review. So for those that are not um, as deeply involved in Medicare Advantage plans, chart review programs are very common within a Medicare Advantage organization. A chart review program is where the plan hires um, an, an outside company or they will work internally 
to review charts of members uh, within the plan and look for potential errors in coding on those charts. The main point of contention here is that plans will hire these organizations to review these charts. The charts will be reviewed. Diagnosis codes will then be added to the chart. Typically, they're being added because the chart is reviewed and maybe there's a lab result that was discussed with the patient, with the physician regarding a certain diagnosis code, but the diagnosis code for some reason was not included in the chart. So that diagnosis code will be added to the chart. Those diagnosis codes are then submitted to CMS and reimbursed through the process of the risk adjustment program. As Christine said, it's for the following year. So if the member, if the member's diagnosis code is added via chart review program in one year, the following year that impacts the payment for that member's, um, that capitation payment for that member. So the chart review programs have been under investigation for a number of different plans. Um, and that is one of the three main pieces of the settlement for Cigna. The second one is similar, um, and that is for in-home assessments. Here, instead of professionals going in, reviewing a chart and looking for diagnosis codes that are potentially supported in the record but not included in the chart, in this instance, providers are going to a member's home and they are assessing a patient for to understand what conditions that that member or that patient may have. Here, there is some discussion back and forth as to the whether the in-home assessments are truly treatment for that patient or if they are being used to add diagnosis codes to a member's chart to then increase or inflate the payments coming from the federal government. Um, the third third key tenant of this settlement for $172 million is related to a specific condition, which is morbid obesity. And here the investigation identified members that were coded with, with morbid obesity that potentially did not have supported, uh, or those diagnosis codes supported in their record. So that's one example of a large recent settlement with a Medicare Advantage plan. Christine, anything to add on that? Or do you want to talk through a, another example uh, with regards to a settlement in the Medicare Advantage space? No, I think you, you covered that well. Um, I will give an example of a settlement that is of a smaller scale with a smaller Medicare Advantage plan. This one uh, in Maine, which is my home state, and that's Martins Point Health Plan. And that um, settlement was reached in July of 2023 and has similar themes for Cigna regarding the chart reviews. And in that matter, uh, the relator was contending that Martin's Point was submitting false claims for inaccurate diagnoses. And the, um, the conduct at issue involved three years during which they had operated a chart review program. And these outside vendors and in, had the uh, coders come in looking at all of the medical conditions that the chart supported and then utilizing the results of those chart reviews to then submit uh, additional diagnosis codes that the healthcare provider may not have reported. Um, and so in this case, they had focused on a few uh, HCCs, such as diabetes without complications, 
CHF, vascular disease, uh, and COPD. And the DOJ noted that a significant percentage were unsupported by the underlying medical records. And as a result, with, with the uh, Martin's Point submitting these erroneous codes knowingly, and as a result, uh, received capitated payments to which it was not entitled under the Medicare Advantage program. And of course, the settlement uh, does not admit or deny uh, liability, but it's just an example of uh, another Medicare Advantage organization reaching a settlement. This one was was large for, for the plan. Um, and the same theme of uh, coding and inaccurate coding submitted for payment. That's very, very interesting, very helpful. Um, I think that the last point that I wanted to, to discuss was uh, related to trends that we're seeing in investigation and litigation, uh, which honestly tie very closely to what we just talked about regarding settlements, final rule, and uh, audits. Um, there are two things that I wanted to focus on today. The first is regarding investigations of provider organizations and their coding patterns. So as has been a theme throughout this discussion is that the conditions that are sent to the federal government for uh, risk adjustment purposes must be supported in the patient or in the member's medical record. Oftentimes when a investigation is opened into a provider organization or a Medicare Advantage plan, what the investigation is looking at is specific diagnosis codes that potentially are not supported in the record. Uh, we have seen instances in the past where providers were potentially using a template, uh, copying and pasting uh, a medical record from the prior visit, where diagnosis codes are ending up on the chart. There maybe are suggestions in the EHR that says a certain diagnosis code should be added to a record and those diagnosis codes are added to the medical record and ultimately impacting the reimbursement. So oftentimes when you're thinking about provider investigations, it's really important to think through as a provider organization, how are my providers coding their, their charts and then how are the coders and the other processes that we have in place for reviewing these charts how are they critically assessing the charts to ensure that the only diagnosis codes that are ending up on the charts are those that are supported within the medical record? Um, this often happens with smaller, more obscure diagnosis codes, maybe ones that we wouldn't expect to see on charts very often. Those are the ones that I have seen in the past been investigated in terms of provider organizations. Um, but sometimes they are, are larger, more prevalent diagnosis codes that are being investigated as well. So it's important that all diagnosis codes are reviewed um, with scrutiny to ensure that they are supported within the medical record. One of the other types of investigations that we've seen a lot are is related to the chart review programs that we discussed. Um, and the, the reason for that, I think, is that uh, a lot of Medicare Advantage organizations use these chart review programs, and it's important to have a good understanding as to why is the chart review program in place and what is the intent of the chart review program. Um, the chart review pr program should be looking for diagnosis codes that are potentially supported in the record, 
um, or are supported in the record to ensure that the documentation that the Medicare Advantage plan has is accurate and that they are that all of the diagnosis codes that are being submitted to the federal government are supported. So those are the two, I would say, biggest trends that we've seen lately, either investigations or in litigation regarding Medicare Advantage plans. Um, but Christine, is there anything that you've seen? I know you work with a lot of providers. So is there anything that you've seen uh, on the provider side that's maybe similar to this or even something completely different? I think on the provider side, as you noted, the provider network agreements always have language about submitting complete and accurate claims. And then the question always is, well, what is complete and accurate when you're submitting a claim for payment? As we noted, it might not uh, contain all of the ICD-10 codes uh, relevant to the patient. Um, I think that part of the um, process for the providers is always having the opportunity to review the contract templates to see if language updates are needed regarding capturing additional diagnosis codes for an updated claim. Um, and of course, whether and to what extent that impacts processes and resources um, is another question. So the risk, of course, is where the coding must be updated annually for HCCs and providers needing to capture historical codes that are still applicable and removing inapplicable codes. And as we know, providers aren't coders. Some provider organizations have policies and procedures for coding initiatives, including a manual review before each claim is submitted. But oftentimes with the um, EHR and the and the uh, revenue cycle process, that claim is not reviewed by an individual prior to it being submitted. And providers also have policies and procedures regarding clinical documentation and internal audits, but that may focus on a fee-for-service environment um, and not necessarily focus on the HCC coding process. The... Um, there's always uh, contractual and collaboration opportunities to remove processes, but you need to take a holistic view of that. And as we noted, the false claims risk is still going to be an issue, even with the switch to the EDS submission. I think the RADV audits will also have providers thinking about uh, recoupment and recoupment language in their agreements to the extent that a Medicare Advantage organization is found liable for payer um, recoupments. There's also um, other factors that impact a patient's health and well-being, such as social needs and the Z codes, which aren't widely utilized at present. Um, a subset of the Z codes is designed to capture health risks related to socioeconomic and psychosocial factors. And the Z codes interaction with the risk adjustment models, we don't yet know how that will look. Um, as they don't have HCC values um, associated with them at at least at present. Um, and for those involved in some of the CMMI programs, we know that the ACO REACH has the health equity plan uh, requirement. And as Mandy was noting, the uh, in-home assessments, um, looking at what the obligations are on payer contracts to the extent a payer implements a home visit and looking at those as being a mechanism to communicate potential diagnoses to check at the next annual wellness visit versus something that, um, of course, automatically goes on the medical record. So that's that's what I've seen, Mandy. I don't know if you wanted to, as we wrap up, look at things on the payer side for our audience. Sure. 
Yeah, I think uh, that that was a great example and great. Uh, it's great to hear what providers are thinking about and then hear what Medicare Advantage plans are thinking about because the two are so, so interrelated. Um, so as we wrap up, I would say the two takeaways that I would talk through, at least in terms of the audit landscape and areas for investigation and litigation. Um, the first one is just making sure from an audit perspective that you are critically reviewing the results of the audit and the key components that make up the audits parts. So particularly as we go into um, audits for payment year 2018, where extrapolation is, is going to, to be happening, it's very important to have a really good understanding as to uh, what is included in the universe, what has been included in the sample, and then how that methodology of sampling and results and extrapolation is happening. Um, because that's going to be very important as the audit process continues. On the investigation and litigation side, I think that the key component that we talked through in the examples that we provided, as well as some of the points that Christine made on the final rule, is that ensuring that diagnosis codes are documented and supported when being submitted uh, to CMS is of utmost importance, um, because that is how Medicare Advantage plans are paid. and. Um, it's very important that when a Medicare Advantage plan is being paid for conditions that are in a member's medical record, that those conditions are supported. Um, so those are the two two main takeaways that I would take from this discussion. Christine, what about you? Yeah, thanks. On the provider side, I would say that the biggest takeaway is this is a good opportunity to review and read your payer contracts. And a lot of times the Medicare Advantage addendum um, is often just looked at as a pro forma, which to a certain extent it is, but there are also obligations for the provider there. And understanding what the, those obligations are and what can be negotiated is even more important, especially since a lot of this is new, and the changes regarding we've we've already seen changes in the Medicare Advantage organizations um, adjusting contracts to note uh, requirements for or resubmitting claims to the extent additional codes are identified and understanding that obligation and the level with which uh, the provider needs to be mindful of what it's undertaking to do and of course always understanding the quality and bonus programs and what the provider is agreeing to as they are participating in opportunities to receive bonus payments um, or take on risk for um, MLR targets. Um, and I also think that the uh, potential for after the fact recoupment um, is also another item to just be mindful of in the agreements and what the language says about the plan's right to recoup funds as a result of these um, audit findings. I think the other big takeaway is just revisiting compliance programs and compliance best practices um, and ensuring that the um, there is a structure and program to go to guide business re requests through the approval process even for activities and materials that may not require CMS uh, review and documenting the concrete steps taken to evaluate and establish a defensible position for your de decisions, not ignoring reports of compliant activity, and then monitoring your compliance program effectiveness. And of course, making sure you're staying up to date on all these developments, it seems like 
this is regularly in the news. And so establishing an infrastructure to monitor for any CMS guidance updates, as well as OIG advisory opinions, DOJ settlements, and any other relevant news. So those, those would be my suggestions um, on the provider side. So this concludes our podcast. And I just wanted to thank you, Mandy, for sharing your expertise uh, and insights with us today. We hope that everyone has enjoyed uh, the podcast and wanted to remind you that you can contact either Mandy uh, or myself. Our contact information is, is listed our, on, on our respective uh, websites, and we would be glad to answer any additional questions and provide uh, additional insight uh, as needed. Any final thoughts, Mandy? I would just I would just echo that first. Thank you, Christine. Thank you, Nelson Mullins, for having me on this podcast today. Uh, and thank you for all of our listeners today. We hope that you enjoyed it. And as Christine said, please feel free to contact either of us if you have any questions. <laughs>